Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The breaking of the bread. Do you know how hard it is to find a good loaf of unleavened bread in the Quad Cities? And I told Ann yesterday, I said, I think I'll just make my own, but I didn't. And maybe I'll just tip my hand a little bit. It's a part of my sermon. But the reason I wanted it is because I wanted to demonstrate to you more realistically what it means uh, to break the bread and how Jesus did that. It really is not a whole lot like we practice today. So I thought if I just had that nice loaf of unleavened bread here today, and it's not the poofy, yeasty bread Big, it you know, it rather flat and and uh, tasteless loaf of unleavened bread that you would almost have to rip apart, very tough. And I thought that one might be a, a a good thing to to show because it really is so significant. It plays a significant role in this whole communion thing that I think we're missing. Now. It doesn't mean that I, I think we need to go and get us a loaf, but if we comprehend this, get our brain around it, and never forget it, we'll be a whole lot better off. We're missing that vital element from this. So here's some, uh, as I've broken this down, the first point that I'm going to make is the precedent, underlined, the precedent set by our Lord, and I take you to the 26th chapter of Matthew and the 17th verse, allow me just to read this passage of Scripture to remind us of that last supper of Jesus Christ that set the precedent as the first Lord's Supper for the church. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So they were going to eat the Passover meal. He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did it as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Skip to verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and he began, and he had, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. So the taking of the bread and the breaking of the bread was not the only thing they were doing. It was concurrent with the fact that they were eating a meal. Then he took a cup when he had given thanks, and notice that is the repetition of that phrase, when he had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out, to the Mount of Olives. Now, Jesus' Last Supper was what we know know today as a Passover Seder, celebrated every year by the Jews. Jesus ordered the meal prepared by his disciples in a room borrowed from a man in his house, and particularly at this point reserved for them. And during the course of the meal, as was common, they took this loaf of unleavened bread and they broke it, and they passed the cup of blessing. And every time that the Jews did this, they were remembering back to the Passover, clear back in Egypt. That's what they thought of. And Jesus was saying at this point, from now on, you will not remember Passover in Egypt. 
You will not remember the bondage. You will not remember the death angel. You will think about me. He was realigning and redefining the Seder. From now on, every time you do this, forget everything else. And now it's a new day. It's a new start. Think about me. Now we have words that describe this. We commonly use the word communion. We often hear the word the Lord's Supper. How many of you have heard the word Eucharist in connection with this? Many of you have, but that is not a common term in uh, Pentecostal churches. And then you may have heard the term uh, the agape or the love feast. And I want to deal with these four terms to bring some clarification because there is some distinction in these terms. When Paul writes to the Corinthians with concerns for the deterioration in their feast, which was a love feast or the agape, he writes to them and refers to it as the Lord's Supper. He could do that because they were eating a full meal during which they were supposed to be breaking the bread and passing the cup of blessing and remembering the Lord Jesus. However, the feast became so popular and the people became so carnal that the food and the feast, the festivities and the party began to overshadow the importance and the significance and the true meaning of what they were supposed to be doing. So eventually, God got edged out of their feast and they got together and they, some of them were gluttonous. They ate more than their share. Others who came, because part of the feast, the concept of the feast, uh, purely was to help provide for people who did not have a lot to eat. They would come, they would share. And those needy ones would probably sometimes get the only good meal that they had for the week. And they did this quite often. They didn't do it monthly. It was a very common thing in the early church. Yet the Corinthian church became so messed up on it that they crowded to the front and got their meal, and they didn't care who didn't get any. And then when it came to the cup, they drank so much of the wine that they became drunk. And Paul gets word of this, and he says, you have made a mess out of the Lord's Supper. Well, I'm assuming that they would bring food. We would call it a potluck in our culture. We had a lot of these people bringing their favorite dish, and when they got there, they ate their own food became so carnal, and it lost the essence of God is here. And we're doing this in honor of Him. So Paul writes to the Corinthians in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He uses that phrase, the Lord's Supper. And then in the 10th chapter of Corinthians, there's this verse that relates to communion, if you can allow me to use that word. That is almost an orphaned verse. Every time we have communion, we almost in any church default to the 11th chapter of Corinthians and we do the reading where Paul says, And I received of the Lord that which also was given unto me the, the night in which he was betrayed. He took, And we, we go to that. But over in the 10th verse is this very important verse related to the communion that we've heard it, we've read it, but it doesn't get incorporated into this as often as it should. So it's an interesting chapter, the 10th chapter of Corinthians, because if you read the portions leading up to this, Paul is talking about the experiences of Israel and how they failed as uh, idolaters and adulterers and murmurers and complainers. And every time Paul points out what Israel did and how they failed, then he applies it and said, don't do that. Look what happened to them. And after he gets done talking about all the failures of Israel and how that serves as an example to us not to repeat their mistakes, then he comes to the issue of the Lord's Supper. And he says, therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. That fits in the context of what he's been talking about in the 10th chapter. He says, I speak to sensible people. I think he's speaking 
by faith there because he knows that the Corinthians claim to be sensible, but he hasn't found them to be as sensible as they think they are. So he appeals to their own uh, uh, claim of being sensible and said, okay, if I'm talking to sensible people, you ought to get this. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And this is the passage where we get our word communion, because it may actually be there in your translation, King James Version perhaps you have, or others, where it renders it this way and says, is this not the communion of the blood of Christ or the body of Christ? And the Greek word you should be familiar with, koinonia, because I have preached on that, and you might see my archived sermon from a while back called koinonitis and one sick church, which koinonia is just the Greek word referring to fellowship. So we have these two words involved in this verse, and the one, the communion, is this not the communion? We've borrowed that word in, in our church and in the Assemblies of God churches by and large, and we've applied that to what we're going to do here today. Those of you who have heard the word Eucharist is a very good word, a very appropriate word, but there is a distinction between it and communion and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was appropriately referring to what the people were doing because it was truly a supper. How many of you here think this snack is an appropriate meal. It just doesn't quite hack it if you're hungry, does it? So this is not really a generation of the Lord's Supper, a true generation. We've changed this. But what it is, it is a Eucharist. And the word Eucharist is found in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And it's translated, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. When he had given thanks, he passed the cup. And that word thanks, Eucharist, literally means thanksgiving. That's something we don't focus a lot on when we take communion, is actually the joy, the thanksgiving that accompanies that. Now, I go back to an early writer called Justin Martyr, who was in the era of 138 to 161 A.D. And let me read a letter that he wrote explaining the function of the church or the, this, this ceremony in the church that we call communion. And, and he gives an explanation of what the church in his day was doing. On the day we call the day of the sun, that is Sunday, all who dwell in the city or country gather in the same place. The memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read. Now this is interesting because you're getting a peek into how the church in, in this second century is actually functioning as compared to how we do things today. The, the memoirs of the apostles, the writings of the prophets are read, as much as, as time permits. And when the reader has finished, he who presides over the gathered admonishes and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things. Then we all rise together and we offer prayers for ourselves and for all others, wherever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions and faithful to the commandments, so as to obtain eternal salvation. When the prayers are concluded, we exchange the kiss. Now, if you want to really get back to how the early church did it, we've got some work to do. I don't know if exchanging the kiss is going to be more popular in our culture. Then someone brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together. If there's any question about how potent this brew was they were taking, it is quite common that the mixture was seven parts water to one part wine, so the wine was very weak. What the Corinthians were doing is they weren't watering it down so much. They liked the wine better than the water. 
And it was having a buzz, an effect on them. So with this water mixed with wine, they passed that. He says he takes them, the bread, the water, the wine mixed, and he offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, for a considerable time, he gives thanks or he Eucharists that we have been judged worthy of these gifts. And when he has concluded our, the prayers and the thanksgiving, all present give voice to an acclamation by saying amen. So he has devoted a significant portion of this time to giving thanks, and everybody's focused on that. And when he who presides has given thanks and the people have responded, those whom he calls deacons give to those present the Eucharisted bread, wine and water, and take them to those who are absent. Now, that last part I find very interesting as well because they were very concerned for those who could not attend that they would be able to participate in that. When I was interim pastoring a little church just before I came to this church and trying to get this little church motivated to start living again instead of just sitting there and dying, I began to challenge them for getting involved in ministry in your community. And we had a brainstorming session. What do you see as the needs in this community? And they began to think, and they thought of uh, taking their, their garden produce, and what can we do with it? Well, they came up with, they have a lot of uh, people in the long-term care, the nursing homes, the rest homes, that if they are able to, they love fresh produce. That generation would, you know. So they thought, well, let's start taking some of that down there. And they did. And let's just go have Bible study. And they did. And they found out uh, shortly into the Bible study that the people really were not grasping the Bible study. So they were very frustrated. I said, no, you don't understand. Bible study is just an excuse. What they want is they want you to be there. And they said, you know, we found that out. So when you go there and you say you're, for Bible, you're there for Bible study and all you do is just sit down and talk to them and let them tell you about their aches and their pains and their weak, you've ministered to them. So it was, they were not as, as concentrated on actually getting the Bible study done as using that as a foot in the door to go and bless them with their, with their uh, uh, tomatoes and their cucumbers and their produce and their presents. And then they got to thinking, well, we have people in this church that haven't attended for a while because their health is failing. And I said, take them communion on Communion Sunday. And their first response to me, which possibly would be your first response to me, was I'm not uh, qualified to serve communion. We're going to dispel that myth. What we've done in the church is we've developed all of our own rules and regulations about who can serve it. I know one church in northern Missouri that they had it in their constitution and bylaws, you had to be a deacon to get to serve this. And if you didn't, it was, uh, I'm assuming they were thinking that it was a spiritual failure, it was a sin, uh, it, they had transgressed against uh, biblical uh, concepts or rules or, or regulations, I don't know, but uh, they were very, very picky about that. But in our church, uh, we have not made a stipulation uh, before we said, would you please help pass this out? Because I think we're bringing more down to where Jesus sat there and served the communion and Judas partook. And he knew what was in Judas's heart. And he did not protect this like we protect it today. He wanted this to be something that common people related with. And they understood the impact of it. So we've built all these barriers around it. We've made it up so uppity and so holy that we wonder, should I even touch it? But we don't have this, this restriction <clears throat> that you only have to be, can only be a deacon to be able to do this. So I told them, I said, take communion to them. And I convinced them they were okay. They were not going to be struck dead by handling the elements. And so we don't know how to do it. I said, just, just go over there and, and, and uh, you know, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and read a little bit and share it with them. And whatever, whatever you get done is going to be fine because there's not a particular ritual you have to go through to make this effective. So they started doing that. And they started enjoying that. And I, I guarantee you, 
the people who were receiving the communion from these people coming from the church were really blessed. They were really enjoying people reaching out to them. They noticed they were gone. They noticed they didn't participate. Now, we've got the little communion cups that are, are they're, they're kind of convenient. They're, they're prepackaged. They're ready to go. And uh, they do have the juice in them. That you peel back the top, the, the cracker is there. And you can just throw one of those in your pocket. And you can go to your friend and you can share communion with them. You can go to the nursing home and share communion with them. You can do that. You just come by and you get supplies, whatever you need from this church. And you head out to the people that are formerly associated with this church or wherever you want to go to. And say, we're here to have communion today. You will bless them. They will enjoy that. And you don't have to be me, the pastor, or you don't have to be them, the deacons, or you don't have to be anybody else. Just come by and reach out and bless people with this. They will appreciate it. That's the Eucharist. The Eucharist, therefore, to summarize, is separated from the Lord's Supper because what we, the Eucharist was always that portion of the feast that only referred to the breaking of the bread and giving thanks to God, and the passing of the cup, and giving thanks to God. And that was a, an attachment and a part of the entire feast that was called the Eucharist, yet the whole thing was called the Lord's Supper. Now, we're, we're not feeding everybody every time we get together and do this, so technically, we're not having a Lord's Supper. We're having a Eucharist today, and we're having some communion today as well. Either one will work fine. And then you've got the agape, or the love feast, which the Corinthian church had, which the early church had. And the young church, you have to remember, was primarily a body of Jewish converts. And since the feasts were a significant part of the Jewish life and religion, uh, as a matter of fact, for, for, eat, uh, for the Jews, eating was a spiritual thing. They had so many spiritual significances tied to the breaking of bread. It's not surprising that the breaking of bread was listed as one of the four fundamental things the new church faithfully attended to when it was birthed there in Jerusalem. And it says they continued steadfastly in four things. The apostles' doctrine, which Justin Martyr referred to, said so we get together and read the memoirs of the apostles, and the breaking of bread, and fellowship, and prayer. That's four things that were prominent enough in the gathering of the early believers that it got listed there, that they got together, they studied the apostles, and they ate, and they enjoyed the company of one another because they were sharing this new faith they had had, and they prayed. Look at the prominence eating plays in the ministry of Jesus. If you ever look at, at that in the Scripture, uh, it will amaze you how many times you've read that, but maybe never assembled together how important food was in his ministry. He ministered to masses, you remember, by breaking bread and fish. That, he knew, would be appealing and attractive to them. And how often do you remember it reading, he sat at meat with his disciples. He would gather around the table, and that would be a time that they would fellowship, and he would teach them. And then he taught kingdom truths using food illustrations and revealed himself as the bread of life and the water that quenches. And he called people to eat his body and drink his blood. And in the resurrected state, he cooked a breakfast for the fishermen and called them to come in and dine. And Luke and John both record two of Christ's most notable post-resurrection appearances as being an occasion where he broke bread, and when he broke it, that's the moment when they recognized him. So it's very important. As a matter of fact, it has rightly been said that Christ's relationship with his disciples was a table fellowship. The early church did practice the love feast, the agape. And it's a little confusing what it had to do with the Lord's Supper, which was based on the Passover. But you have to remember the church was morphing from the Jews who, who dominated and populated the early church into a church that would become Jewish and Gentile. And the Gentiles were not interested in Passovers, Seders. That meant nothing to them. But they had a background of love feasts. So the love feast meets the Passover. The Gentile meets the Jew. And they both agree, no matter where they came from, eating's a good thing. If they couldn't agree on anything else, this clicked with them. 
In their past life, it was important, and that ought to be important now. So they didn't make any, any arguments, have any debates about, should we have food? Yes. Uh, unequivocally, yes. Let's have food when we get together. It's likely the young church gradually weaned itself away from the strict Jewish practices of the Seder, and they would hold their feasts uh, not once a year. That was, that was the Passover. But they decided as a compromise between what the Jews were accustomed to and what the Gentiles were accustomed to that uh, they would have this meal and don't know if they argued over the menu or not. Uh, But eventually, we understand they were doing this every time they got together. And we have scriptural proof of that. Uh, They they gathered every week on the Lord's Day and and they had a meal. That'll get people coming out. We know that. So when the young church was very honestly and sincerely and unselfishly hosting these meals, uh, it's interesting, and this is just a side note that I want you to understand to see how much people have not changed for centuries. One purpose they did this, of course, was to draw people in and to take care of the poor. It was a a benevolent thing they were doing. It was an evangelistic thing they were doing. Come and eat with us. It was a fellowship thing they were doing. And uh, obviously, they were also honoring the Lord in this. And guess guess what happens? They had complainers then too, and critics. And some of the people who were too pure for their own good saw what the church was doing And they said, you know, this looks a lot like the pagan feasts. You're doing just exactly what the pagans did, except you're doing it in the church. And this is is ungodly. And this is the same group of people who today want to pick apart the things the church is doing because they know somewhere in the history of this celebration, it wasn't a a Christian thing. They, They might pick on Easter. Uh, because we use the word Easter, which is related to Ishtar, and Ishtar was a, 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 a false goddess. And, and they said, well, you know, the church shouldn't be having anything to do with that because in its history, or they might pick on Christmas, and they might pick on the Christmas trees, and they say, don't you know that really, truly Christmas is not a, a Christian uh, uh, celebration? It goes back to pagan roots. And, and really, this is what we call, and you can, might want to write this down, this is what we call genetic fallacy. For people who see what's happening today, as they trace it back and find out its roots were not the same as it is today, therefore they try to discount what we're doing today. The second thing is the practice of the church. Uh, Obviously, Jesus did not institute the practice of breaking bread. He just changed the meaning of the breaking of the bread. And in the book of Acts, this newborn church, having been formed as a loose fellowship of Jewish people, and convinced by the manifestations on the day of Pentecost and the persuasive preaching of Peter uh, that Jesus was the Messiah, they gathered together in this communal fashion so they could bond over their new experience. And Acts 2.42 says, as I've alluded to before, they devoted themselves to the four things, the apostles' doctrine, teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And when they did this, don't think of the tiny shot glasses and the little crumb of bread that we're going to do today. They really gathered together and they ate. And then any apostle who might have been present at these gatherings would pass on instructions he had received directly from Christ as they gathered together to eat the bread of fellowship and drink the cup of blessing and think about Christ. And then just four verses later, Acts 2, 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes. So this once a week they would gather together, as a group, but every single day they went to the temple and worship and they would say to somebody, come go home with us and have a meal. They were always inviting people into their homes daily and it says they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So once again, the importance of eating together and the importance of keeping Jesus at the center of this activity. That's the reason, as I said in my sermon uh, a week or two ago, it's so significant that when 
Jesus broke the bread and drank the cup. He said, as oft as you do this, which how often do you eat? He was putting it on a daily functional level. Don't forget about me. Every time you eat, think about me. Every time you drink the cup, think about me. In other words, morning, noon, and night. Think about Jesus. Don't let him be dismissed from your thoughts or your life at any point. Always be reminded of him. So here it's clear evidence that they used their homes for the breaking of bread, which is reasonable since they didn't have a church building yet. The only place they had to worship these early Jews was the temple or a synagogue, but they didn't have their church, so they did these things in their homes. And in the 20th chapter of Acts, Paul, this is some 25 years after Christ's resurrection, probably 22 years after Paul's conversion, he finds himself on, uh, <clears throat> in his third missionary journey, his final missionary journey, and he enters a town called Troas, and we see there that the believers are gathered together and they've already established a pattern that Paul joins in with. It says in the 20th chapter of Acts, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, on the first day of the week, then Paul began talking to them. You will remember this story from the book of Acts because this is where he came to them. And as it says, they broke bread on the first day of the week. Paul talked to them, but he talked and he talked. And he talked, and he talked, and they were in the third story of some building somewhere, a house, and there was a young man there named Eutychus that was getting tired of this elongated sermon or Bible study or teaching or whatever was going on. And as he grew weary, he fell out of the window and, and fell down and died and talking about breaking up a good Bible study. Something like that can really interrupt the flow of things. And of course, Paul ran out and he prayed for the young man and resurrected him and talking about uh, bringing an extra bit of pizzazz to your Bible study. Well, how'd it go tonight? Oh, it's pretty good. We studied the apostles' doctrines, ate a little bit, raised somebody from the dead. And most often, when you hear somebody refer to this passage on the first day of the week, they were gathered together to break bread, the thing they want to emphasize is, see there, they worshiped on Sundays. They want to use that passage to make that emphasis. However, there's something else there that, that maybe is important that we're missing. We always talk about the when of this passage, but we don't talk as much about the what or the why. Of the passage that they were gathered together on a Sunday. So we've got the when nailed down. The when's okay. Sunday's okay. But they gathered together in fellowship and they talked and they prayed and they ate and they remembered Jesus. And when somebody with apostolic authority like Paul came along, they just uh, pulled everything out of him they could. And he, he literally taught for hours until at midnight. When he was still going, that's whenever Eutychus died, and he raised him from the dead. And what do you think Paul did next? He went back and he taught some more. He wasn't done yet. Now, the church today, as relates to the Eucharist or communion, and not so much the Lord's Supper, because we realize it doesn't really resemble what they were doing, it has evolved. It definitely has from its beginnings. And the evolution of this was fairly quick. The young church gathered to break bread every Sunday, including the fundamental things of the reading of the Scripture, the Apostles' Doctrine, teaching, prayer, fellowship. It was no formal ritual, uh, just the fulfillment of fellowship among believers who, who wanted to keep this flame of their newfound experience alive. These people weren't fully committed to the Great Commission yet. They were still just happy to be saved and reaching their, their family and, and Jewish friends. They didn't understand getting outside of Jerusalem. And as I preached a few weeks ago, uh, they didn't understand going to Samaria. Those people weren't important. We Jews have something new here. So they were very uh, self-centered. But they gathered in this communal arrangement and uh, this kind of communal support where they're gathering together and sharing with one another uh, 
they were, they were breaking with the tradition of their Jewish forms of worship. And they were breaking with the hardened Jewish leaders who opposed this new movement that they came to mockingly called Christians or Christianity. And the opposition, of course, to these people who were gathering as Christians, these Jews who now are not relying just on gathering at the temple or gathering at the synagogue and doing what they did as Jews, now they're forming this new movement within the Judaistic system. And the main opponent of that, uh, the big kingpin, we, we came to know as Saul or Paul, who was trying to stop that movement before it got off the ground. It didn't work. And so the point of interest is how much the modern church has changed from its beginnings. Now, I, I don't oppose change. We understand there are certain things that uh, change, times that change is necessary. We would be in bad shape today if we refuse to have change and we say, well, these people spread the gospel by walking or riding a, a pack animal or taking a boat. And therefore, if we're really going to do it like the early church did, we cannot use modern technology to get around the world. We're going to have to walk or get us a horse or a mule or take a boat. But we don't do that because we realize some changes are good and make us more effective in carrying out the Great Commission. And we, we don't need to argue that the early church that met in many homes, and so therefore, if we're really going to be like the early church, we need to meet in our homes and disband this place and lock the doors because that's the way the early church did it. Well, I think there's some convenience to being able to get together and have the kind of fellowship here today that we have. So that's not a bad thing. And we don't need to argue that the early church started out only singing psalms because nobody had written any hymns yet for them. And they didn't sing the songs of Martin Luther or John Newton or Isaac Watts or Fanny Crosby. Therefore, we should only sing psalms. So we're not going to argue that point because change does come. But we have to admit there are some changes that have taken place that probably we have a deeper concern for. And as for the Lord's Supper, we know that the Corinthian church changed that and got off track so fast within 25 years of the day that Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. They weren't remembering Jesus at all. They were thinking about themselves. So in our evolution of this, what has happened is we no longer have the meal. That's, that's permissible. Let's don't call it the Lord's Supper. We're not having a supper. That's false advertisement. If anybody's coming and they find out this is what we're serving, they're going to go away hungry. But we're going to do the Eucharist, the main part of it. And as a matter of fact, while I'm at it, I'd say uh, the meals, how many want to vote the meals are good? And not just from a carnal standpoint from the point that when we get together and we eat together and we fellowship together, we build one another up. And I don't think, as Christians, we often do that without incorporating our Christian experiences into that and talking about the things of the Lord and end up with testimonies and blessing His name because we have supped together. So that's a good thing. It always has been and always will be. But as we have changed and evolved, what was a simple yet sincere time of honoring God by the early church in their fellowship and their meals evolved through the centuries to sometimes turning into a very mystical ritual with unexplainable rules that we made up about who can administer it and who can take it and sophisticated theological arguments about what actually happens when I put that bread in my mouth. What actually happens whenever I drink that cup? had a young lady take my membership class a few years ago before I came to this church. And she had been taught in her church where she came from uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation. It means the bread literally turns into body of Jesus Christ. The, the wine, the juice literally turns into the blood of Jesus Christ when it gets in your mouth, this mystical transformation. And she had grown up in that. And believed it. And when I got to the point of talking about communion and say we don't believe that, it made her angry. And she said, uh, I can't recall exact words, but she argued the point. And she says, uh, but I believe it turns into the body of Jesus Christ. And, of course, I'm trying to respond by saying there, there is no, that is not a valid biblical uh, truth. We, we don't see where that's validated. That has been created by men. We have no proof of that. 
But it made her so angry, she did not come back to the uh, membership class. She did not come back to church. She quit church over that because I dared to challenge her pet doctrines. So take your pet doctrines and, and pack them away. You know, we want to know truth. We don't want to understand, well, this is what I've been taught all my life. We want to understand what does the Bible say. So Paul used the symbol of the loaf, which is what I wish I had here today, which is significantly missing from what we're doing. Because the significance of the loaf is, in the 10th chapter of Corinthians, he said, the loaf is one. And you are the body of Christ. And you are one. And the reason this is so important is because when we have that loaf and we see the unity, the singularity of it, it is an ongoing reminder that we are the body of Christ. Jesus is the bread of life, right? We are the body of Christ, and this loaf is one, and you're supposed to be one. And since disunity is a huge attack on the body of Christ, splitting people, making them bicker and fight one with another, wouldn't it be wonderful to remind ourselves on a regular basis, this loaf is one, don't forget it. And this little pan of broken crackers that we're passing out doesn't give us the physical reminder that we're one. As a matter of fact, it might be more appropriately show how we're many. So this, this very important symbol escapes our focus and our emphasis and our attention every time we do this. So we, unfortunately, are missing this symbol of the unity that should be a graphic reminder to us. Now I know the wheels are turning. And for some of you, if your wheels are turning, you're not going to hear what I'm going to say next. So stop your wheels for a minute and don't make up your own version of what the pastor just said. Stay focused, please, for just a minute. I, I don't think in this corporate setting that having the meal or getting the single loaf is going to solve all of the church's woes. We don't have to have this loaf to technically be right or make it to heaven. And I'm not saying we should go back to using the community cup that you take a sip and pass it on. I, I think we are a, a culture today that have become too sensitive to backwash, and we're a little bit concerned about that. So we have to be cautious of what we're doing here. But what I do want us to do is don't forget this important point. The unity that comes from what we're doing that represents here. So I come to the third point. It won't take me long to go through the third point, which has five subpoints in it. And don't, get, don't get panicked. The purpose of the Eucharist, number one, as we look at what Paul told them. First of all, during the Eucharist, you are to look back. This do in remembrance of me. And in looking back, and the Scripture also says, as often as you do this, you do show the Lord's death. That's past, looking back. Think about how we remember those who have passed on. We have a funeral. When the funeral's over, there's a nice cemetery plot somewhere. We place the body in that hole in the ground, and the hole heals up, and the grass grows back over, and there remains this marker there. So when we go back, we can find that spot. And oftentimes we revisit that. Sometimes we sit down, we have these huge emotional experiences because we go back to the grave. And we sit down, we think of all the good times, and sometimes we'll just go by ourselves and sit and we'll cry a little while and we'll talk to the person and we'll take flowers because we remember. And this is what we do as human beings. This is the way we remember those who are gone. And we bring that same mentality in here, when it comes time to take the Eucharist, and it says, remember me, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So we start getting on our, our, our funeral face and our, our, our funeral attitude, and we start thinking about he died, and it's almost like we're doing the grave thing. But see, you can't do that. Because I, people go and visit the tomb, and they always come out never grieving, they always come out and they want to say, what's the stock thing? 
I went there and it's empty. They never come away grieving and unhappy. They always come away and say, He's alive. He lives. The tomb is empty. So when we come to remembering, we don't want to think in terms of a funeral. We want to think in terms, I remember he died, but I know he's alive. The only reminder we have that he died is the Eucharist. The fact that he arose changes our focus. So when we show the Lord's death by breaking the bread and drinking the cup of blessing, the dynamics are totally different than going to the grave with an armful of flowers. And furthermore, should we be sad at the time of taking this? Should we grieve and think about all the pain that he suffered? Well, it seems appropriate to feel sorry for the man of sorrows, doesn't it? But let me suggest something. What was Jesus thinking about just before he was going to die on Calvary? Was he grieving? Luke tells us perhaps not. As Jesus was being marched from his scourging to Mount Calvary, there's a number of people lining the path where he is walking along and part-time carrying the cross and part-time giving it up to Simon the Serene. And a large number of people followed him, including women. And guess what the women were doing? They were mourning and wailing for him. And Jesus turned to them. And do you remember what he said? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. If you're going to cry, cry for yourselves and cry for your children. But don't weep for me. I don't want you to be sad about me. This is not a, an occasion where I want you to pity me. I want you to, to grieve about me. You want further proof? The writer in Hebrews tells us that who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. The writer of Hebrews did not say he experienced deep grief for what he was going through, but the thing that carried him through his Calvary experience was joy lays before me for the joy that is going to be there. No wonder he turned to them and said, Don't wait for me! This is the happiest occasion you'll ever know on the face of the earth. I am going to nail your sins to the cross and you will be free. Rejoice! Furthermore, to look back, the second thing is we should look up. As it says repeatedly, and when he had given thanks. Eucharist. Thanksgiving. And thanksgiving, I have never noticed. Correct me if you think I'm wrong. I've never noticed an attitude of thanksgiving to be a spirit of grief. You do something for somebody, and they don't come and grieve before you say, thank you very much for doing that for me. They're happy. Thank you! Thanks is an expression of joy and happiness. When he had given thanks, full of joy. Justin Martyr, as we remember what I read to you, emphasized the element of thanksgiving as he described the church's act of breaking bread together. And for an extended period of time, they just gave thanks, gave thanks, and gave thanks. So the second thing we do today is we look back, we look up. The third thing we do is we look around us. Because as we're doing this, we were reminded of Paul's words that says, when you're doing this, you're one. We look around ourselves in fellowship. And we realize this is my Christian brothers and my Christian sisters. And I'm so glad to have them here today. I hope my relationship with them is right. And if your relationship is not right, why not? What stands between you being able to freely, openly love and forgive anybody? You say, because they're not loving me back. That doesn't excuse you. You can love them even if they don't love you back. It's your heart we're concerned about. Now, there's two things in this looking around us that the Bible brings out. And the number one I've already mentioned is the unity symbolized by the breaking of the bread. But the second thing he gets to just a few chapters later. The 11th chapter is about the communion, the Lord's Supper. The 12th chapter, we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit. The 13th chapter, we're talking about what? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Come on, scholars. Love. 
And those all follow together. They are not separate thoughts. He is flowing in his thought. As he goes from being one in Christ to being used by God, by the gifts, to loving appropriately God and man. And all of these are integrated together. We're united with Christ and we're united with each other. We are instruments through which the Holy Spirit wants to operate, as mentioned in the 12th chapter. And we are able, the greatest way we are to be used by the Holy Spirit is through love, with godly love. And let me just quickly remind you what Paul says love is, because we tend to forget. Love is patient, kind, not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, is not rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Oh, I love that, don't you? If you've been wronged, would you just forget it? Love says it keeps no record. It does not rejoice about injustice, but it does rejoice when truth wins. Love never gives up, it never loses faith, it's always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. And if we can live by the biblical definition of love, we will be transformed. Mister, if you can get this around you, your, your wife is going to fall in love with a totally new man. And the same to you, lady. If you can get your brain around this... The man's going to think he's got a brand new wife. And some parts of those probably popped out at you as we were reading that. And you took that and you underlined, I want that part about is not rude. I want that part about is not arrogant. I want that part about is not jealous. The fourth thing that communion tells us to do and Paul tells us to do during this time is to look inward let a man examine himself this is hear me cautiously once again listen don't don't zone out on me this is the least important of the three it's not unimportant but it's the least important and I say that because I'm fighting against the trend for us to make it the most important there's been too often when we come to this and we spend our whole time thinking about our own nasty selves whenever the reality of it is And I think we've etched it right here. This do in remembrance of me. Jesus wrote that. This do in remembrance of Jesus. So what service do we do if we keep thinking about us? As a matter of fact, whenever Paul wrote this, and he said, uh, let a man examine himself, remember who he wrote that to. He wrote that to, to the Corinthian church that they were so far gone. They were so carnal. They were so far off base. They were destroying. They had already destroyed the Lord's Supper. They were devouring each other. They were drinking to the drunkenness at their feast that God got edged out. And he told them, you better examine yourself because you're partaking unworthily and that's the reason a lot of you are sick and dying. Now we carry that into our own life and we come here thinking, I'm just human. And I fail so often. I think things I shouldn't think, and I, my mouth shot off the other day, and we're sitting here, and we're trying to think of every sin we ever committed so we, can, so we can confess it, so we can take this without being stricken dead for partaking unworthily, and I think we're missing the whole point. This is a minor point. This is a minor point. Unless you are, are, are on a tear, unless you are hell-bound, unless you're rebelling against God, I would say don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about you. We are coming here to deal with our ongoing weaknesses. That's why we're here. But this is a minimal point. Let a man examine himself. And then the final thing is to look forward. And the scripture says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. Until he comes. And that gets lopped off somewhere and forgotten in this whole process of five things that are supposed to bless us and benefit us whenever we do this. And none of this has to do with feeling sorry for anybody. It all has to do with rejoicing and thanksgiving and love and compassion and fellowship. And particularly when we partake today and every time we partake, the last nail in this thing is there is hope. 
looking forward. There's something better than what we have. And I need that today. And that one's going to stand out to me because I'm telling you what, as a 21st century pastor, it's easy to get discouraged as we see it seems as though we're losing the battle for Christianity in the United States of America. And that's discouraging. But every time I take this, he said, until I come and I have to remember, oh yeah, it's not over. He hasn't deserted me. He's coming back. And when he comes back, I don't care how bad it gets, he's going to fix it. He will set straight that which has become crooked. He will elevate that which is sucking low and bring down that which has been made lofty and straighten the crooked paths. He is going to fix it. It's going to be okay. And with that confidence and with that hope, I will partake of the Eucharist today. Honestly, I've never in my entire life been more disturbed by the sick and perverted world we are living in. I've never been so disturbed by the condition of our nation. Christian business people are being forced to violate their faith by substituting, subsidizing uh, things like abortion for the employees. We don't believe in that, but we're being forced to pay for it. That's discouraging. A college professor just in the past week or two in Georgia recently required his students to draw a picture of Jesus, put that picture on the floor, and then stomp on it. One student refused to do it, and the university attempted to kick him out of school because he refused to stomp on the face of Jesus. That discourages me. Planned Parenthood just in recent days made testimony before a committee that they said, we are now, as we are thinking about this, in favor of any baby who survives an abortion by the small odds and is laying on the table and breathing and functioning on its own, the future of that baby should be left solely to the discretion of the mother and the doctor. And if they don't want it, they should have permission and be legal to kill that baby. That's discouraging. Whenever... Uh the news has been buzzing with reports in recent days declaring that now the majority of Americans are supporting gay marriage. That's discouraging. And the reports keep rolling in weekly to testify how sick and twisted this world really is apart from biblical authority. So when I partake this morning and I envision the breaking of the bread and we lift the cup of blessing to our lips and we let look... We, we, we look up, we look around, we look back. We look forward. And we say, it's not over. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, and the dead in Christ and the graves are going to open up, and we will lay one of our faithful saints to rest who has passed on just in the next couple of days place that body in the ground. I do it with the confidence of knowing that one of these days the trumpet is going to sound and the voice of the archangel is going to cry out in, in obedience to the voice of God to call them forth. The grave is going to burst right back open and the bodies of those who have gone are going to come forth and be made immortal and incorruptible and joined to the soul and the spirit and there to be forever with God. That's what the Bible describes. And we who are living and yet remain, whatever gravity is forced to release its power on us that binds us to this earth. And literally millions and millions of Christians right now, the population of the world, over 6 billion, do you realize almost one-third of those claim to be Christians? I don't know how many of the Christians are really going to go to heaven because I think for some it's a name tag. But let's just, let's just say, uh, for argument's sake, that we've got about a third of the world that's gone. There's going to be plenty of room for the rest to have a party. They can have my house. But whenever the people, the bank, wants to come and look me up, and figure out why I'm not making my mortgage payment, I'm going to be laughing in heaven so I don't owe it anymore. And I, that, I want my children to go because you don't want my mortgage payment. They'll come after you. If there's no other incentive to get you going, just don't inherit my debts. Go with me. We're getting out of here. 
And then there'll be seven years from the time the church is raptured until the time we all come back and take over this planet Earth. And during that time, somebody's going to run for the President of the United States. And they're going to say, I can help pull this nation back together. They can do that. I'll be gone. No matter how bad this world is, I will regularly break the bread and remember He's coming back and I remember there is hope and I will think about the future. Jesus is going to rule and reign. Bow your heads.